Romans chapter 11. We'll be reading verses 1 through 10 of Romans chapter 11. And once again, let us all stand for the reading of God's word, beginning at verse 1 of Romans chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Thus, God's word. Let us pray. Father, we, we bow before your greatness and your sovereignty and your majesty and we pray that you might this day unveil our eyes so that we could see the gospel of Jesus Christ in greater glory and we pray Lord that we might be able to trust you with how you're working out your gospel plans throughout history. We're yours Strengthen our hearts, build our faith, so that the object of our faith might ever be seen in everything that we say and do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the new year has begun, and we are now entering the home stretch in the Apostle Paul's focus on the Jews in Romans chapters 9 through 11. And we are going to see how they fit into God's overall gospel program. What that means for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what it means for us here at SGRC. Well, after doing our absolute very best to understand Paul's teaching in chapters 9 and 10, we might be tempted to think that God had completely given up on Israel. 
That is what had to be clarified in chapter 11 because many in Paul's day believed that that might be so. Israel's situation certainly had that feel and look about it. After all, the nation as a whole had rejected and was rejecting their own Savior and more and more the church was being swelled with the ingathering of Gentiles who had come to faith in Jesus Christ. But thankfully, things are not always what they appear to be. They're not always what we might initially think they are. Remember Paul's question in chapter 9? He asked, had God's promises to Israel failed? God had certainly given promises to Israel, hadn't he? And Paul answered that question by saying, no, God's promises to Israel had not failed, and the reason that they had not failed is because God's gracious elective purposes in Jesus Christ have not failed. Then in chapter 10, Paul began to teach on the doctrine of human responsibility. And in light of Israel's rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul put the blame right where it belonged. God in human flesh had come to his own, and his own had received him not. And the Apostle Paul was absolutely heartbroken when he considered lost Israel. He literally, I believe, agonized as he wrote Romans chapter 10. But he managed to clearly lay the blame squarely on the shoulders of those Jews who were unbelieving and Christ-hating. Quoting the prophet Isaiah at the very end of chapter 10, the Apostle Paul exposed the magnitude of Israel's sin and rebellion when he said, All day long I have held out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. So, last week, as we considered those sober words, we all closed our Bibles thinking, well, what a sad commentary on Israel. But there is cause for praise. God be praised. Why? Because that's not the end of the story. Have you ever read a book where a very sad situation in one of the chapters had your heart in your throat, but as you continued to read, you were very happy to find that that wasn't the end of the story? Or perhaps you have had an experience in your life that was very dark and difficult, but then things began to change and the light of hope began to reappear. When Joel was just four years old, that would have been back in 1988, he was in the hospital for three weeks, and during that time he was in a coma for 10 days with encephalitis. Well, after Joel was released after those three weeks, Children's Hospital forwarded Joel's medical records to his pediatrician. Well, the first time that Laurie and myself and Joel got in the car and went back to Dr. Goldstein as pediatrician, the doctor said to Laurie and me, as I was reading through the notes on Joel, I just knew that he had died. What a relief. What a relief. 
to find that he came through that. What had looked so bleak and dark was not the end of the story. Chapter 10 is not the end of the story for the Jews. Paul has more to say. He's going to clarify misunderstandings that we might have and move our minds to the place of praise. Chapter 11 does not end like chapter 10. Often when you initially say something to someone, aren't there inevitable misunderstandings? And so the discussion has to continue in order to gain clarity. Well, that happens all the time in the, in the session. And we understand that. It also happens all the time with Kent and Laurie. The last conversation that Laurie and Kent had on uh, that kind of theme was the subject of dead skin cells. Well, don't ask me about it. Oh, you should just live with us for a little while. It gets very interesting. In chapter 11, Paul is clarifying what he has taught thus far about the Jews. Despite the present apostasy in Paul's day and the darkness of the moment, Paul moves through chapter 11 with the light of hope. And I think the main reason is because God suddenly at the beginning of chapter 11 becomes the subject. And by the time Paul finally reaches the end of chapter 11, he is bursting into praise with the same words that are on the front of our bulletin at the bottom. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory. Soli Deo Gloria, we learned in our Sunday school lesson this morning. So clarifying possible misunderstandings, Paul begins in in, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, by asking, has God rejected his people? And with the strongest negative in the Greek language, he says, by no means. By no means. He has not rejected his people. By no means. And then he supports that non, that no-nonsense conclusion with a convincing argument meant to dispel any doubts amongst us that God is finished with his people, Israel. In his argument, he says, Look at three things. Look first at the evidence. Look second at the nature of grace. And look third at God's God's sovereignty to dispel any doubts in any of his readers' minds throughout time that he had finished with Israel as a people. The evidence that God has not rejected his people wholesale is found in verse 2. Verses 2 through 5, Exhibit A, the Apostle Paul himself. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Hey, I'm a Jew. 
I'm a Jew and I have been gloriously called by God and saved by the blood of the Lamb through faith alone. Guess what? My lineage traces all the way directly back to Father Abraham and I am from the tribe of Judah, which, by the way, is where the great city of Jerusalem is located. I am as Jewish as Jew can get. And although my heart was sinking deep in sin, God has given me a new heart and new eyes to see that Jesus Christ is Lord of all and that sinners are saved by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. Look at the evidence. Exhibit A. I am a Jew, and I believe that Jesus is God's Christ, His only Son, my Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, He was crucified, dead, and buried. And in that awful event at Calvary, Paul is probably thinking, Christ bore my sin in his body and suffered my just punishment in my place. And then he rose again on the third day. Forty days later, he ascended to the right hand of his heavenly Father in total victory, having won it all. I also believe that Christ will come again to judge the quick and the dead. Paul says, consider the evidence. Look at me. Exhibit B. Verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Why does Paul say that? He says that because his inspired pen has already taught us in Romans chapter 8 that when God foreknows someone, he lovingly foreknows them from all eternity past in view of Christ. He can't reject those whom he foreknew. It's impossible. It's impossible because everyone God foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he called. They don't slip through the cracks. There are no cracks for those that God foreknew. And those he called, he justified. God can't reject those he foreknew. And in this context, the implication is clearly that God has foreknown many Jews from all eternity past. Verse 2, God has not rejected those he has foreknown. Exhibit A, me, I'm a Jew. I love Jesus. Jesus is Lord and he has risen from the dead. Exhibit B, God has not rejected others of the Jewish ethnicity that he has foreknown. That's the context. Exhibit C, Elijah. The evidence is stacking up. 
Now Paul reaches back into the scriptures citing Elijah, verse 2b through 4. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what does God say to him? Oh, don't be afraid for your life, Elijah. I won't let them kill you because you're the only believing Jew left on the earth. No, Elijah, whether they take your life or not is not the issue. And ultimately, it's in my hands. I'm sovereign. But I want you to know this. I've kept 7,000 for myself who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah says, no, I'm alone. God says, no, you're not. Have you ever felt like you were all alone and vulnerable to the enemy of your soul? You are not alone. God has kept many others for himself. And some of those most significant others that you have are right here in this room worshiping with you today. You also have a session that supports you prays for you, labors for you, and loves you. Young people, do you sometimes feel like you are the only ones your age who truly believe, guess what, you are not alone. God has kept for himself many godly teenagers who would make very good friends and very good husbands and very good wives. But of course, Paul is using Elijah to illustrate the fact that God always, always has a believing remnant of Jews who are embracing God's promises in Jesus Christ. Even during times of great darkness and apostasy. And in light of this, since we are all prone to discouragement, every single solitary one of us, don't you think that if God was faithful to his old covenant people in the days of Elijah and those dark days of great apostasy, that he would be faithful to his new covenant people? What do you think? We are not always faithful, are we? But God is. He's faithful. He's faithful to his covenant. He's faithful to us. He's faithful to you. He's faithful. He's faithful to your family. He's faithful to your children. And in light of the historical evidence about Elijah, look at what Paul says about the times of his own darkness, which would have been about 55 AD, great spiritual apostasy. He says in uh, verse 5, sliding right off of Elijah, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And good Bible students can testify to that, can't they? Because in the New Testament scriptures, they reveal that many other Jews during Paul's day were products of God's grace. 
120 of them were in the upper room when the Holy Spirit fell upon them, weren't they? Thousands of them were saved on the day of Pentecost. Maybe less, a little less familiar when the Apostle Paul met with James and other elders in the church at large as it is recorded in Acts 21. By the way, the unity and accountability in the church at large that we find in Acts 21 is a big reason why we are Presbyterian. Just as a matter of interest, Pastor Nichols was teaching for Ligonier this past week on the radio, and he said, he made the point that all of God's children are in a process of sanctification throughout this life. And then he went on to say, and one day when we're all in heaven, we'll all be Presbyterian. I am a Christian first, but I am a Reformed Presbyterian by conviction. In Acts 21, when Paul met with James and the other elders in various regions, Paul relayed to them the wonderful things that God had been doing through his ministry among the Gentiles. And you know what they said to him? They said, Paul, guess what? Thousands of Jews are also coming to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the evidence. Exhibit A, Paul. Exhibit B, God's gracious election. And exhibit C, Elijah. But now Paul says, look at the nature of grace. The nature of grace, the very nature of it, has the power to take the self-righteous sword out of the sinful, prideful Jewish heart. That's the nature of grace. Indeed, it has the power to save both Gentile and Jew. Verse 6, Paul says, But if it is by grace, he's talking about salvation, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Well, grace and works are in complete antithesis to one another when it comes to justification before God. If people believe that God accepts them because they are good and that there is something within them worth accepting, it's at that point they begin to deny grace. That's when grace is no longer grace. People may think that they are Christians because of what they bring to the table in terms of their own goodness, their own kindness, their own obedience. But unless they repent of that sort of thinking and trust solely in God's free grace in Jesus Christ, they are headed for hell. If it is by grace, Paul says, that is getting something that you totally don't deserve, then it cannot be on the basis of works anymore. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Well, in rural Missouri, in these here parts, a lot of the old timers, you may hear them on occasionally say, well, God helps those who help themselves. That's not true. 
God helps the helpless. That's what He does. God does not save me because of something within me. God does not save me because I do my 1% and Jesus does the rest. No, those who believe, verse 5, are chosen by grace. And if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And the reason that some believe and are putting all of their chips in the total sufficiency of what Christ has done for them is because they have been chosen by grace. 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 Greater than all my sin. And what the Apostle Paul is saying about the Jews at this point is actually very positive and hopeful. He has not rejected them as a people because of the nature of God's grace. God's grace is so amazing, so amazing, that it can save even the most self-righteous Jew who spits in the face of Jesus and cries out for his crucifixion. God's grace can turn the heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Go back to exhibit A in the evidence department. Self-righteous Paul hated Christ. He was not looking for grace. The last thing he thought he needed was grace. He did not want grace. He didn't need grace. He had himself. And he thought that something within himself and about himself was enough to gain acceptability with God. And on the Damascus road, it was grace that knocked him off his horse. It was grace that opened the heavens. It was grace that brought the message of the gospel to Paul and changed the disposition of his heart so that for the first time in his life, he knew he needed grace. And that Jesus was Lord of all, come to save hardened, spiteful, proud sinners who were very religious, just like him. Sinners who previously thought they they were already acceptable. You know, I wonder if anyone here has ever been discouraged because it seems so difficult to reach people for Christ in Donovan and Popper Bluff and Puxico and West Plains and Pocahontas and Ellington because every street is lined with churches and many people in America and especially rural America just take it for granted that they're Christians.
Do not be discouraged. Be positive. Because God's grace is amazing and powerful to save a wretch wherever they are, around the earth, around the globe, whatever they profess, whatever self-deception religiously that they might be in, if they are not trusting solely in Jesus Christ for their salvation, trusting in the Savior, imagine that. God's grace can bring them to their knees and bring them gladly to profess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all and bring them to a place where they are obedient to the gospel joyfully and gladly. Maybe someone comes to your mind. Maybe you think, well, how is this ever going to happen? That's the nature of grace. It can make the foulest clean. And then last, Paul says, look at God's sovereignty. Look at the evidence. Look at the nature of grace. And now let's look, Paul says, to God's sovereignty. And I want to walk you through these verses beginning at verse 7. What then? Paul is asking us what kind of conclusion can be drawn. He's asking us to think. What then? What then? Israel, he says, failed to obtain what it was seeking. What was Israel seeking? They were seeking righteousness. But the righteousness that they were seeking, they were seeking it on their own terms. That never works. You can't come up with your own righteousness. It's never faith plus me. Faith plus what I do. Faith plus who I am. Faith plus, well, I'm better than most people. It's never that. You can't come up with it. And most, uh, even, the, even Roman Catholicism, which has gone off the deep end, says you must have faith. But it's faith alone. In Christ alone. And Paul says, Israel sought that righteousness, but they tried to do it on their own terms. And then he says this, and the rest were hardened. Well, quoting from the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, Paul is showing us the full breadth of God's sovereignty. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a, a, a trap of stumbling and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. If you can imagine that. What a horrible, horrible picture. 
But what the Apostle Paul is teaching here is that God, in God's sovereignty, he chooses to give many Christ-rejecting Jews just exactly what they're asking for and what they deserve. That's what he's saying at this point. He chooses to give them justice. God is not unjust to do that. In our evangelical culture, the complete sovereignty of God is thought to be abrasive and unfair. But what many do not realize is, is that these quotes and quotes like this and judgments these judgments and judgments like them are exactly what highlight God's grace to undeserving sinners. These quotes are extremely positive in the sense that without God's sovereignly saving some through the redemption won by Christ, no one would be saved and this would be everyone's judgment justice would come to all. And so, in that sense, because in God's grace, He has chosen to be gracious. He, he wasn't required to be gracious. All of us would have in this picture throughout all eternity in hell had a bent back, been bending backwards for all eternity. The nature of grace is that it is undeserved. That's what makes the gospel the good news to sinners. That's what makes the gospel something that takes a little church family like ours and binds us to Christ and pushes us to love each other as He has loved us. That is what gives us strength in our hearts to endure the trials of this life because we know that God's promises never fail. Not for the Jews and not for the Gentiles. God's sovereign grace is what guarantees that more Jews and Gentiles will be saved. And he puts that on the background of these judgments and his sovereignty in that area as well. Because no one deserves grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse from sin. Don't you love it? As Paul ventures into chapter 11, we see a light. And by the time we get to the end, he will be in a doxology of praise. A literal doxology of praise. 
And it's all in the context of the Jew in in chapters 9 through 11. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory. I wonder if you believe that. May God help us all to treasure in our hearts God's word. And the more we are able by His grace to do that, the more we will be able in response to be the person who is more and more conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to understand the gospel. And we have to understand grace. And the fact that it's undeserving. We have to understand Where we are now, right now, as we sit, trusting in Christ in light of eternity, we are saved to the uttermost right now through faith in what God has done in Jesus Christ, in what our Savior, the Lord of glory, has done in His life, in His death, and in His resurrection. Therein lies grace that is so powerful that the ground cannot hold him and it is able to save the most wretched sinner on the earth. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray for your help and grace to take all this in so that we might be lifted to the place of praise to the doxology of praise that is in your precious word at the end of this chapter. And Father, we ask, O God, that in your grace, you would hold us, mature us, teach us, and unveil our eyes that we might see how amazing grace really is. Thank you for the people who are uh, the Jews. And we ask, O God, that more and more of them would come to true saving faith in Jesus Christ, our brothers, our sisters in Christ. We also ask that in and through us and around us, all around us, 2016 might be a great harvest Help us to believe that you are able. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.